Heavenly Father, we've gathered here with a, I pray, a right desire to worship You as the Scriptures teach, both in spirit and in truth. And we fully recognize, Lord, that in our flesh, apart from the Spirit doing a mighty work this hour, we are unable to do that. But we are so thankful, Father, that before the foundations of the world, You ordained for Your children, Your elect, to be saved. We're so thankful, Jesus, that You, in accordance with the Father's will, came, submitted Yourself to the cross, and took the punishment that we rightly deserve that we might become sons and daughters of the Father. And we pray, Father, that You would show us the Holy Spirit's work today. That as Christ ascended into heaven as we just had a chance to declare that both You and the Son sent the Spirit to come to us, to draw us in, to plant the Gospel deep in our hearts, to cause us to repent and believe and be baptized and become members of a church. Holy Spirit, we want to rightly glorify You this morning. You truly, God, we want to glorify the work that You have done, the work that You are doing, and the consummation of that when You bring Your church, Your holy apostolic Catholic church before the Son on that last day and present us to Him. I pray, Father, that You would help a sinner like me preach such profound and loving truths that You would help my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning receive this truth, that You would cause those who do not know You, that You would draw them in, and even this day that You would save them. We're so thankful, Father, for the work that You've done and that You continue to do through Your Holy Spirit. I pray that You, Christ, and the Spirit would be glorified during this time. In Your name, Amen. You know, this, uh, this sermon is just for you. Um, there's a tendency week after week and year after year. I'm, I'm pushing on 20 plus years of preaching, so I'm probably over a thousand sermons now. And you, you, you read and you read, you write and you pray and then you preach and we gather and we listen, but we don't ever want it to become routine or ordinary. This is a sacred time set apart by God. And as I was writing in And praying during this week of study, I thought, this sermon is for you in particular. God ordained for you to be here this morning. You're not here by chance. And therefore, this sermon is for your ears and for your heart. And so I pray that you'll receive it. I pray that God would help you through the Spirit to listen really well and find yourself rejoicing deeply in the work that the Spirit has accomplished in your life if you know Christ. Amen? So will we hear well this morning? Let's strive to that end. Um, in, in the gospel account, in Luke's gospel account, he focuses on the, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the second person of the holy triune God. He focuses on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. When we get to the book of Acts, the, the theme stays the same. It's still salvation by grace through faith in Christ the Son, but the focus of ministry now is not on the work of the Son. That's been completed. It is now on the work of the Holy Spirit. So this, the third person of the Holy Triune God, 
working to bring the gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why many commentaries have rightly argued that if, if we were to rename the book, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or I think I said this in the first couple of sermons, better yet, the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church. The work of the Holy Spirit working through the church. Now, if you've been with us, the Stephen's been murdered. The church in Jerusalem has been scattered. Philip was one of those Hellenistic Jews. We first met him, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 6. He was one of those seven men selected by the church to meet the needs of the Hellenistic um, widows in the Jerusalem church. Well, when, when Stephen was martyred, Philip fled to him, and he went to Samaria. And we've seen over the past couple weeks the great work he did there. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel. The Holy Spirit moved in a mighty way. Many were saved. Many were baptized. And then if you remember, Peter and John went down. They laid their hands upon the church and the Holy Spirit descended. And we had a a second Pentecost of sorts. Great work is happening here. And then we, we pick up the story with Philip again. He's still tracking Philip's ministry, Dr. Luke is. And, and now the Holy Spirit has commissioned Philip to go south. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And on his, on his way south, Philip has a providential encounter Not by chance there is no such thing in God's economy with an Ethiopian eunuch. And and there are lots of ways you can approach this text. You certainly can draw out missions on it. You can draw out evangelism on it. But I believe that Luke has it here because this is going to be God bringing the gospel for the first time to a truly non-Jew. Not a half-Jew like a Samaritan. Not a Jew living in in Jerusalem or Judea. But a completely 100% foreign-born soul. And he's going to reveal to us, I think from this passage, and then set the stage for the rest of the book, how the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work. Philip is used in a mighty way. The gospel is proclaimed by his mouth, but it's the Holy Spirit who does the work. And so I'd like, I'd like, to, I'd like us to worship the Holy Spirit well today. We don't do that. The evangelical church doesn't do that. We get heavy on the Father, heavy on the Son, and the Holy Spirit is over here on the side. The Holy Spirit is truly God. He is God from God and light from light and true God from true God also. And so let's, let's magnify him this morning. I want to show you three ways the Holy Spirit redeems people. And if you know Christ, he did this with you. Number one, how the Spirit prepares the soul. Number two, how the Spirit plants the seed. And number three, how the Spirit brings forth life. You say, this sounds like a very theocentric, God-centric sermon and not so much about man. Praise God for that. I think we need a lot more of those. Extolling, exalting who God is, the great work that he's done, and that we get caught up into that. But it's not about us. It never has been about us. It's always about God. The theme of this sermon would be this. Only by the Spirit's work can the unredeemable be redeemed. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit can someone unredeemable like you and me be redeemed in Christ. Amen? Number one, the Spirit prepares the soul. Philip heads south. Per the Spirit's leading, he literally was told, take the road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Now, if you know Gaza, Gaza's on that southern tip right there. It's the, it's the last watering hole 
before you'd make your, your way west across the desert to Egypt. And Luke highlights it as a desert place. It's really a weird location, but he wants us to know that in this desert place, something magnificent is going to happen. In this lifeless place, the Holy Spirit is going to take a foreign man who is dead in his sins and transgression, and he's going to make him alive. And so he highlights this location as being a desert place, a lifeless place, because he's going to make a dead man live. Now, the Ethiopian in our story was not from modern-day Ethiopia, if you know your geography well. Um, He was very likely from a kingdom called Mero, M-E-R-O-E. And the Mero kingdom was part of the Nubian Empire. And you probably remember that from your, your world history. The Nubian Empire actually spanned almost 1,200 years, going back all the way to 800 B.C., then forward to 400 A.D. Most of you know that kingdom from the Old Testament as the kingdom of Cush. So you probably recognize that. Uh, the, the Nubian Empire was of great curiosity to the Greeks and the Jews because they were a very advanced culture. And of course, Greeks and Romans had a lot of pride and they thought they were the pinnacle of civilization when in fact, here in the Nubian Empire, there were many cultural advancements that surpassed both the Romans and the Greeks. It was a kingdom ruled by queens. In fact, the term we have here, the Candace, was a title. It wasn't the queen's name. And our eunuch, according to Luke, is he serves in the queen's court as her treasure. We would call that today the minister of finance. In other words, this eunuch had power and influence in one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world. And so the question that I had and you should have is what was this Ethiopian eunuch doing on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza almost a thousand miles away from his hometown? What was he doing on this road? Luke tells us at the end of verse 27, look with me. He said, he, the the eunuch, had come to Jerusalem to worship. He had made the thousand-plus-mile journey to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, to worship Yahweh. And that means at some point in time in his life, who knows how old he was, he probably heard from some diaspora Jews about this Yahweh and the teachings of the Old Testament and this city called Jerusalem and this temple where they could go and worship so he's, with this queen's resources, very likely he makes this journey and he gets there in order to worship as well. Now what makes this so extraordinary is that he's a eunuch. And that means that very likely at birth he was physically altered so that he could not have children, that he might serve in the queen's court. But that's problematic if you're going to worship Yahweh according to the Old Covenant. Because of the court in the Old Covenant, if you were mutilated in that way, you could not enter even the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court of the temple. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, this is God's law. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. He was blemished. And so he could not worship God properly. He was a black a Gentile eunuch from a foreign land. Come, he came to worship God but could only stand outside the temple. He was forced to remain outside of God's worship until this exchange. And in this exchange, everything's going to change. Look at the latter part of verse 27 again. The eunuch, we're told, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning seated in his chariot. 
And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Now of all the Old Testament books the unit could be reading, this would have been a really good one for him in particular. Of all the Old Testament books, there's so much in Isaiah talking about God receiving foreigners into his family and into his home, and particularly in Isaiah 56, eunuchs. Listen to this. He's reading from Isaiah 53, but three chapters later, no doubt he had this memorized. This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah centuries before. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, listen, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. That's the promise to the foreign eunuch. I will give to them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. My house, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So we should not be surprised that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the prophet Isaiah. This promise had a profound and specific meaning for him, not only being a foreigner, but being a eunuch. We should not be surprised that he made his way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. We should not be surprised that on this journey home, he was not only reading from Isaiah, but Philip was called by the Spirit to come and do what? Verse 29, go over and join his chariot. We should not be surprised, my beloved, because none of this is happening by chance. Every single part, the most minute details, even the eunuch reading from Isaiah 53, is the Spirit's doing. It's the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit of God doing a work to redeem a soul. And what he's doing here is he's drawing this man in. He's drawing him into the covenant community. In John chapter 6, as Jesus was teaching that he is the bread of life who's come down from the Father to bring eternal life to sinful man, Jesus said this in John 6, 54, Jesus said, no one can come to me, that's an issue of ability, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so not only does that verse specifically teach that in and of ourselves, We cannot come to the Father. We will never, ever, ever make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit comes to us first. But it also tells us something extraordinary, that the Father, through the Spirit, is drawing people to himself. God the Father, through God the Holy Spirit, is drawing people to himself. In other words, he prepares the heart to receive the gospel by drawing that person in. in fact, that word draw in the Greek in John 4, 66, it's an attractional draw. It's a, I've heard the term woo be used before. It's not a picture of the Holy Spirit conjoling or trying to convince or, or trying to, to, to attract like a shy puppy who won't come to its owner. Nor is it a picture of the Holy Spirit dragging people, kicking and streaming into the kingdom. That's not what John 6, 4, 4, 66, 644 means. The word draw here is the Holy Spirit coming upon the sinner and opening his heart and mind to truth. The Holy Spirit draws us by revealing the nature of our sin. 
The Holy Spirit draws us in by revealing that God is holy and therefore we stand in great danger. The Holy Spirit draws us in by showing the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And in that great work on the cross, we have hope of not only being forgiven of our sins, but being adopted into the family of God. Calvin is correct. Calvin said this drawing is not violent so as to compel men by external force. God doesn't make us come in against our own will. He changes our will so that we want to come in. Listen to what Owen said. John Owen said, Upon discovery of the excellencies and sweetness of Christ in the banqueting house, right, that's where we're going to commune with Christ around the wedding feast of the Lamb. The soul is instantly overpowered and cries out to be made partaker of the fullness of it. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and is drawing you in, you're going to see the holiness of God, the depth of your sin. You're going to see that Christ is your only hope and you're going to want to come. You're going to need to come because your heart and your mind is being changed by the Spirit. This is what God is doing through the Holy Spirit with this Ethiopian eunuch. And this is what the Spirit of God did with you if you know Jesus and by grace he's doing for you right now if you do not know Christ. So important for us to know this morning. At some point prior to your repentance and faith, the Word of God, the things of God, heaven, hell, the cross, um, they probably held very little interest to you. If anything, if you knew about them, you probably pushed them away. Either you didn't believe them or you fought against them. I know when the Spirit of God first drawing, started drawing me to Jesus, I was more interested in cars, girls, grades, and money, not the things of God. But if you're like me, when the Spirit started to move in your heart and you began to experience this weird thing called conviction, for the first time in your life you became aware of your sins, not only aware of your sins, but aware that your sins are utterly sinful, and you started to think about God as your creator, and if he created you, then you were created not only with a purpose, but you belong to him. These are all thoughts that the Holy Spirit brings upon us, and that your life you begin to realize your life has not been lived to worship, obey, and love God. It's been lived to worship and obey and love yourself. And maybe you got to that point like I did where you rightly conclude, if God is this holy and God is this good, then I know the depth of my sin and there's no hope of me ever coming into his presence. And if I do, I will only be judged. If you have experienced that, that is the Spirit's drawing. That is his wooing you reminding you, telling you, convincing you that you're not a good person who occasionally does bad things. You're a bad person through and through. And even the good things that you do are contaminated by self-interest. And you begin to realize that through the Holy Spirit, that you stand no hope of entering the banquet house of the Lord unless God does something to save you. This is the glorious drawing of the Holy Spirit. It is His work it's why the eunuch traveled a thousand miles to worship at a temple he could not enter. It's why the eunuch was reading the prophet Isaiah at the exact time that the Holy Spirit sent Philip to explain it to him. Because the eunuch, like you if you are in Christ, listen to this, before anything ever was, when there was only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God ordained to save you in Christ. 
your name, your face, your body, known to him to be saved forevermore. Chosen by God. And now the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, was drawing this man as he has drawn you. Is that not what Jesus said, that, that I will be lifted up and in so doing I will draw all men to myself, all those that God has ordained to be saved? And was this man drawn? Was this eunuch drawn? He absolutely was because Calvin's right. When God sets his sights on you, you're never going to get away. When God decides he's going to pour out his infinite love on you through his son Jesus Christ by sending the Spirit, you are never, ever going to get away from God's irresistible, eternal love. Oh, hallelujah. Because if it were up to us, we would. But God will not let that happen. Listen to Luther. He said, this drawing is not like that of an executioner who draws the thief up the ladder to the gallows. Listen to Luther closely. It is a gracious allurement such as that of the man whom everybody loves and to whom everybody willingly goes. You begin to see Christ. Well, that's the Holy Spirit's work. You see him clearly, you will turn to him. You see him upon that cross, you will run to him because that's what the work That's what the Spirit does in us. The one being drawn willingly goes because no one, my beloved, no one can resist the magnetic power of God's infinite and wooing love in Christ. No one can. So first we see, I pray, how the Holy Spirit prepares the soil of the heart that we might receive the gospel. That's what's taking place here with the eunuch. He does something else. Point number two, the Spirit plants the seed. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip, I want you to know, Philip is listening very closely to the Spirit's leading. He does exactly what the Spirit said. The Spirit said, go stand by the chariot. He goes by the chariot. He hears Isaiah 53 being read, and most of you know that. It is a very popular evangelical text Isaiah 53 depicts a suffering servant. I mean, we know it to be Jesus Christ. That was not that easily understood, certainly in the time of the first century, and certainly not by an Ethiopian eunuch who is just learning about Judaism. In fact, the Jews debated, and still do, the Jews today are not going to say it's Christ. They will say it's speaking of Israel proper, the nation, or a Messiah, a Savior to come. Now, without an interpretation, the Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I understand unless someone teaches me? I need a guide. I need a helper. Now, this was not a stupid man. He's in a position of power in the court of a queen of a technologically advanced nation. And we know he's literate because he's reading the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. So this is, this is no dummy. He's a smart man. But apart from understanding, listen, apart from understanding that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who fulfills Isaiah 53, you can't understand Isaiah 53. You're either going to say it's talking about the nation of Israel or a Savior to come, not, who, not one who has already come and been raised from the dead. We don't want to be too hard on the eunuch, the disciples themselves, after spending three and a half years with Jesus, seeing him die, seeing him buried, seeing him raised from the dead. They still needed this help. Luke chapter 24, you remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus shows up, this is what he says to them. He says it in love, O foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to the disciples all the scriptures and all the scriptures of things concerning himself. So Philip is, is doing the same work that Jesus was doing in his resurrected form. Philip is being a faithful servant of Christ and he's engaging in that same instruction, showing the eunuch that all those prophecies, all the teachings that were pointing to Jesus Christ have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. He's the one that everybody's been waiting for. So Philip, Philip jumps up into the chariot with the eunuch, probably so eager, and he explains Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. That's our verses 32 and 33. Look with me. Latter part of verse 32. Quoting Isaiah from the Septuagint, like a sheep, he, had, he, had, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now we hear that and we say, well, of course that's Jesus. We're 2,000 years removed from the resurrection, right? This is maybe five years post-resurrection ascension. So this teaching is very novel to them. The eunuch asked the right question, though. I love, he's got a good hermeneutical sense about him. He says, who's he talking about? Who's the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And of course, Philip's going to say, oh, he's talking about someone else. My beloved, this is, I don't believe there'd be a better verse. I mean, maybe there is. This is a great verse, though. I mean, if you're going to be set up for an evangelistic encounter, could you have a better verse than Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, talking about the suffering, humiliation, and exaltation of Jesus Christ in two verses? I imagine... If I put that up on the marquee and one of your colleagues drove by and read that sign and they found out that you were here and they came to you on Monday morning and they say, hey, what is this Lamb of God? Who is this Lamb of God? Why don't you just sit back and say, unbelievable, fantastic. I mean, that's like a softball. That's a home run. You can't miss that one. It's an evangelistic dream come true in two verses. The suffering, the humiliation, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Look at his suffering. We're told here in Isaiah and then quoted again by Luke that this Jesus, this is now the Son of God as we just recited. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, one in being with the Father. He is the Lamb. My beloved, do not diminish the fact that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is God. You want to truly exalt Jesus Christ in your heart and mind? Remember who did the work. Not a demagogue, not a servant, not just a man, but God himself, Jesus Christ. And just as the prophet had prophesied, he was handed over unjustly to the Romans to be slaughtered on a Roman cross. And instead of pleading his innocence, like the lamb before the shears, he remained silent before the Sanhedrin, before Herod, before Pontius Pilate. He did not open his mouth. Why? So that he could endure the suffering and the sacrifice as our lamb so he could be our Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Isaiah also tells us, secondly, that he was humiliated. Look at verse 33. In his humiliation, justice was denied. So we have his suffering, we have his humiliation. Philip knew this account well. Philip was in the midst of it as it was taking place. Jesus' arrest, the false accusations, the illegitimate trials, the beatings, the mockery, and then the final sentence of death on a Roman cross, the greatest injustice without question 
The greatest denial of justice in all of human history took place at Calvary. Philip understood what Isaiah meant when he said, who can describe his generation? No one could. The Messiah, Messiah was killed before he could get married and have children. He could not. His suffering, his humiliation, lastly, Isaiah speaks of his exaltation. Latter part of verse 33, for his life is taken away from the earth. Jesus' life was certainly taken away when he was put to death and buried. But more importantly, and I think that the emphasis that Luke is trying to make is that his, his life was taken away from the earth when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He reigns over the heavens and the earth. So Jesus is suffering humiliation and exaltation. Two verses. Isaiah 53, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Messiah prophesied by Isaiah centuries before, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And without missing a beat, Luke tells us that, look, look at verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and, began, and beginning with this scripture, he told him, he told the eunuch, the good news about Jesus. So he explains, I mean, he's, he's going to be a good exegete. He, ex, he exegetes Isaiah 53. He explains what that passage means. And then he gives him the full gospel. He's not just going to leave it there. He takes a name and a face. He takes a broken body and a bloody cross, and he attaches it to Isaiah's prophecy. And he said, it is Jesus. It's Jesus that he's talking about. Philip, no doubt, elaborated on Jesus' virgin birth because he is God. He no doubt talked about the baptism of John, where God the Father affirms, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and then sends the Holy Spirit. Why not talk about the Trinity? Certainly he talked about his earthly ministry, all the healings, all the teachings, all the fulfillments of Scripture in Jesus. And he absolutely taught about the cross and why the Son of God would have to die to save a man like him. He explained that he had to suffer the full equivalency of our eternal punishment, dying in our place so that sinners, by grace through faith in this Lamb, can not only be forgiven, but receive the pure righteousness of Jesus and be brought into the presence of God as sons and daughters. Philip explained the good news and then applied it to him. He didn't just leave it out there hanging. The good news, he says, requires a response. The gospel always requires a response, my beloved. We don't just say it and say, oh, that's neat. That's an interesting philosophy. The gospel requires a response. And the eunuch understood and heard that it required him to repent and believe. He was being given a chance at life, a chance to be brought into the presence of the God that he traveled a thousand miles to see and he couldn't get in. He was being given a chance by grace through faith, listen, as a black foreign eunuch to be brought in and become a full-fledged member of God's family. Do you see what's happened here? The Holy Spirit, who had already been drawing this eunuch, takes the word of God and the testimony of Philip, and he drives it right into that man's heart. He drives it as deep as it can go. And the Holy Spirit then uses his own power 
to bring the wooing process, the drawing process, to its consummated end. It was supposed to end in salvation for this man. Not just a dating process. The making of a dead sinner into a living saint was the end. The taking of a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. Creating a new man, born again in the spirit, to be a living testimony, what? To the love and the mercy and grace of this great God. My friends, if God is wooing you this morning and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to redeem you, then today is the day of salvation. If you are being wooed, stop resisting. Stop resisting the drawing. That's the Holy Spirit of God doing that to you. What an amazing thought. And if you do know Christ and you have been wooed and you've been consummated in the marriage with Jesus, then your mission is the same as Philip's. The mission has not changed. The Holy Spirit, here's an amazing thought. The Holy Spirit this very morning throughout the entire world is drawing people to God. He's doing that work right now. The Holy Spirit is drawing people in your life to Christ. And therefore, we want to be just like Philip. We want to be faithful to the Spirit's leading. And we want to come alongside all those in our family, in our neighborhoods, at work that do not know Jesus. Come alongside them. Ask them questions. Listen to them. Get to know them that you might share the very clear teaching of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. The Spirit is the one who does the saving, my beloved. Luke makes that clear throughout the entire book. But the Spirit purposes, and this is fantastic, He purposes to use believers just like us to take the seeds of the gospel and plant them into the hearts of those He's already been drawing. He's drawing people, and then with our mouths we bring the gospel, and He takes from our lips and He puts it into their hearts. Now, if you're trying to do a direct parallel between Philip and here, you might say this. That's not fair. And this is so not fair. The Holy Spirit told Philip the road to take Jerusalem to Gaza, and then he says, go stand next to the chariot. That's very specific. This is an easy evangelical encounter. If you say, that's not fair, I'll say, I'll give you that. That's true. Most, if not all of our gospel exchanges are not like this. But it doesn't matter. It does not matter. Because we believe that God is the only one through the Spirit who can change someone's heart. Our ministry is a ministry of proclamation, not salvation. You save no one. You couldn't save yourself. How can you save anybody else? God is the one who saves. But he does that through the proclamation of the gospel from our lips. So you don't have to. Listen, I'm going to take some pressure off you. You don't have to convince people or manipulate people. You don't have to sell the gospel. You don't have to sell it. Through our faithful testimony, living as God has called us to live and proclaiming with our lips the gospel of Jesus Christ, God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy and have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And we rest in that. My beloved, we just need to be like Philip, just willing to be sent, willing to go to our families and our neighborhoods and our workplaces so that we can make Jesus Christ and the gospel clear to those like the unit who will ask us, how can I understand these things unless someone guides me? Oh, you talk about gospel ignorance. No greater time in the history of our own nation than now. Many Christians 
proclaim Christ and do not know the gospel. That's not possible, by the way. You can't be a Christian and not know the gospel. You are that guide. You are that teacher. You're that one sent by the Holy Spirit to bring the truth to those in your mission field. All right, we've seen how the Holy Spirit prepares the soul, how he plants the seed. I have one more for you, how the Holy Spirit brings forth life. We don't want to end with just the planting, right? We want to see what happens with that plant. Does it live? Does it thrive? Verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is such a precious scene. This is the first recorded, full-blooded, non-Jew, hearing, repenting, believing, and being baptized. This is your legacy. It's so extraordinary. Now, it's obvious from the eunuch's request that Philip had taken the gospel applied it to the eunuch's life and said, you have to repent, you have to believe, you have to put your faith in Jesus, and he was obviously talking about baptism. In other words, the gospel is not some Ivy League contemplation or philosophical musing. It's certainly not a fairy tale. The gospel, we believe, is the power of salvation to everyone who what? Who believes. To everyone who believes, and we saw what that meant last week. That means confessing your sins before a holy God. It means putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. It means turning from those sins completely and turning to God. And it means baptism. It means baptism. Participating in the glorious 2,000-year-old ordinance that declares the Spirit's work in a man or a woman before God. The word baptism, you probably know this in the Greek, it means to submerge, to literally to go under. And so Luke tells us that shortly after Philip shares the gospel, declares the gospel, and the eunuch makes a proclamation of faith, the Holy Spirit, just by chance, right, the Holy Spirit brings the chariot by a pool of water deep enough for them to go down into the water, to go under it. Now why would the Spirit bring this to pass? Because the proper mode of baptism according to scriptures, is submersion. It's going under. Not only because the New Testament prescribes it, but more importantly because of what baptism represents. The waters of baptism represent physically what the Holy Spirit has already done spiritually in a believer's life. So by going under the waters of baptism, we believe that the Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus, has washed away our sins By going under the waters of baptism, we express our perfect union with Christ. That just as Jesus entered the tomb of death and then rose again on the third day to live a resurrected life, we too enter the waters of baptism in death as a declaration of the Spirit's work, revealing that we too have died to our sins and are coming out of the waters to live a resurrected life in Christ too. By going into the waters of baptism, Like a bride and groom at their wedding ceremony, we are declaring before God and man our love for and allegiance to Jesus Christ. We're putting on the wedding ring of faith, not by force, because you were drawn in by the Spirit, you were born again by the Spirit. It is your heart's desire 
to be united with Christ fully. It's your heart desire to proclaim before man and God, this is my true love. And so you go in and you come out following him. Now for all of our brothers and sisters in denominations who use sprinkling as the mode of baptism, this should be a very convicting passage. I mean, after all, if there was ever a time where sprinkling would be justified, it would be in this desert place where there was no water. And there was certainly enough water in the chariot to do a little sprinkling. They wouldn't have emptied their drinking supply. But so important is the practice of baptismal submission in water. The Holy Spirit ensured that the chariot was passing by a water hole deep enough for them to go under at the exact time that the eunuch had made a profession of faith and wanted to get baptized. And I believe that the reason that Luke records this is that the first Gentile believer could be baptized properly and in so doing set the standard for all baptisms to follow. Look at verse 39. And when they, the eunuch and Philip, came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit, in supernatural fashion, probably thinking of Elijah, whisks Philip out of the eunuch's sight and places him at Azotus. Now Azotus was a a city on the Mediterranean coast, 40 miles due west of Jerusalem. So he's headed significantly north, and from there the Spirit leads him another 60 miles north, preaching the gospel all the way up to Caesarea, where we will, if you stay around long enough, we're going we're gonna to find Philip again 20 years later in Acts chapter 21, where he's faithfully proclaiming the gospel in Caesarea, along with his four daughters who happen to be prophesying the word of God. But before we close, this extraordinary salvation event, I want us to see the new man our eunuch had become. The Holy Spirit prepared his heart by drawing him in. He planted the seed of the gospel through the proclaimed word and the testimony of Philip. And now the eunuch, having confessed, repented, believed, and having been baptized, look at the latter part of verse 39. He went on his way, what? Rejoicing. He went on his way rejoicing. Why was he rejoicing? What had changed in this man's life? He was rejoicing because he had had been forgiven of his sins before a holy God. He was rejoicing because he had been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was rejoicing, no doubt, because now he was a son of God, having complete access into the throne room through Christ. Remember why he's making that journey back to Meroe. He was traveling that thousand miles mile path after being after standing outside the temple in Jerusalem and not being allowed in because he was a foreigner and because he was a eunuch no access worshiping outside but no longer this transaction is Isaiah 56 being fulfilled foreigners being brought into the kingdom eunuchs being brought into the kingdom through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ this african eunuch once totally excluded from worshiping god by god's own law now according to Isaiah, has a name in God's house. He has a name in the house of God, complete and total access into the holiest of holies through the Son. He rejoiced because he was now indwelt by the third person of the triune God. He was able to worship God without barrier at any time, in any place, 
He didn't need to travel a thousand miles to Jerusalem. He could worship God in Jerusalem, in Meroe. He could worship him on that chariot, on that journey. Christ had made a way for him as he made a way for us. Hebrews chapter 10, we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus. We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's why, my beloved, when he saw the water alongside the road, he asked Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? And the answer was this, nothing. Nothing prevented him any longer. Not the fact that he was a eunuch, not the fact that he was a foreigner, not the fact that he was serving in the royal courts of a foreign nation. Nothing prevented him, not his nationality, his skin color, his bloodline, his family name, not even the law of God which prohibited a eunuch from entering the temple could keep him out now. Why? He had been united with Christ. He was united with Christ. Romans chapter six, verse five. If we have been united with Jesus in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. My beloved, by bearing our deformities in his body on the cross, Jesus took the curses we deserved for our lawlessness and he subjected his body to mutilation so that self-mutilated sinners just like us could be saved by grace through faith in him. In him. The eunuch had heard the gospel He had repented of his sins. He had put his faith in Jesus to save him. And he was baptized. He had been, by the Spirit's preparation, planting, and saving work, brought all the way in to the family of God. And now the eunuch was rejoicing because he could enjoy God. He could worship God, not from afar, but in his own heart. Being given a new heart, And now the Holy Spirit dwelling there, the Holy Spirit could worship God at every moment of every day. It's extraordinary. Of course he was filled with joy. This was all God's doing from beginning to end. An expression of love by God to sinners that draws and woos and captures even the hardest of hearts. Your heart was that hard at one time. What an amazing thought that God, the creator of the universe, would set his heart upon this eunuch, killing his own son and then sending the Holy Spirit to forgive this man's sin and grant him eternal life. What an amazing thought. And what an amazing thought that God, if you're in Christ, has done the same for you. That Christ, that God the Father decided that Christ would die and the Spirit would come to bring you, a foreigner, into his kingdom as well. The Holy Spirit, like the hound of heaven, pursued you if you're in Christ. He wooed you and he brought you the gospel. The Holy Spirit enabled you to understand the gospel, repent of your sins and believe and be baptized. And then the Holy Spirit did the most amazing thing. He gave himself to you. He gave himself to you. God said, I will dwell in this person forever and ever. This is all good, but the culmination of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has to be the pinnacle. In you, dwelling in you, guiding you, sanctifying you, and sealing you for that day 
when you will come before your groom, Jesus Christ, face to face, and you will sit down with him and your brothers and sisters throughout the ages at the wedding feast of the Lamb. You're going to be in the banqueting house. You're going to be at the table. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did all of this out of their infinite and eternal love for you if you are in Christ setting their sights on you before you were born to be loved now and forever. And if Augustine is right, my beloved, Augustine said this, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. If that is true, if God loves each of us as if there were only one of us, then you will want to know him as the most intimate, important person in your life. You'll want to know his word so that you can submit to it in love. If truly God loves you as if there were no other, then you'll want to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church. You'll want to engage in the great commission of making disciples. You'll want to, like Philip, be faithful to the Holy Spirit's leading and bring the gospel to the lost in your mission field, seeking out those God is wooing right now. You might even know who they are. And we will, like the Ethiopian eunuch, if this love is real to us, we will live our lives filled with joy, rejoicing today, tomorrow, until we see Christ face to face. Why? Not because of our circumstances. Your circumstances are always going to let you down, but you can rejoice today and tomorrow and forever simply because God has placed his eternal love on you in Christ. And if you don't know it, that's sufficient. That is sufficient. Let's praise God right now through prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, what an amazing work you've done. What an amazing testimony that we have in the life of this eunuch. So far removed from you, geographically, ethnically, so damaged physically that even according to your law in Deuteronomy 21, he's not allowed to enter into your worship. And yet you, through your spirit, what an amazing work you did. Father, you've done the same work, you've drawn us in, you planted the seed of the gospel, you caused us to repent and believe, you enabled us to be baptized and join a local church like this one that we might have life with Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning, that you would cause us to see the great work the Holy Spirit has in fact accomplished in our lives and that we have been called to participate in that great mission that we would be like Philip, Lord, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, going to those in our mission field and telling them the simple, beautiful truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh, Father, use us as well. Use our lives and our holiness, Father, and our service to one another to magnify the beauty of the cross. Cause others to see our good deeds and, as your scriptures say, bring you honor and glory. I pray, Lord, that you would use our lives to draw people to you, that you would use our lips to proclaim the gospel, and that you would, through your Holy Spirit, for our family members, Lord, for our our neighbors and our co-workers, for those right here in San Jose, that you would save thousands. And do that today, Father. Begin a great work that only you can do. 
Revive the dead that are around this church. Revive the dead that are in our families, Lord. Revive them that they might be able to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ forever and ever. For He is worthy of it. In His name, amen.